preaching of God's Word comes from Isaiah 45, verses 21 and 22. And we gather this afternoon in our normal time for God's worship, but obviously with gratitude to the Lord for the Lord's Supper. And it's appropriate for certain themes to have the prominence as we rejoice in the Lord's mercies. Certainly there is the explicit giving of thanks that is often attendant upon such a time. There is likewise an addressing of those who are apart from Christ to consider that damnation which is theirs. But there's also the calling for those apart from Christ to come and magnify the grace of God by embracing that salvation that is held forth to them. And how can we imagine a greater spectacle of gratitude than that sinners would flock unto Christ and be saved? Well, this is our desire this afternoon in the preaching of God's Word. Notice these two verses, Isaiah 45, 21 and 22. Tell ye and bring them near, yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Look unto me. and Be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. Many have made the point that Isaiah could be called the Gospel of Isaiah, for it so clearly and explicitly holds forth the good news of a Savior for sinners. It does so in this way of appealing to uh, sinners to look unto God for salvation, and surely it holds forth the sufferings of Christ in many ways unparalleled in the rest of the Old Testament, perhaps beyond Psalm 22 when Isaiah 53 holds forth the sufferings of the Savior. and Indeed, it holds forth the good news of a Savior for Jew and Gentile. It talks of eternal life and damnation as well but it much focuses upon the provision that is ours in Christ. Now, we take as our text these two verses, which help us in a number of ways in our own context and culture. It's hard to imagine in the United States a proper polytheism today. If we could have anything, it'd be something more like polyhumanism. Everyone has their own form of their own humanistic way. And it has religious uh, expressions here and there. But everyone who studied things realized that the Islam of the United States is far different from the Islam of Pakistan. There's a reason for that. It's because the Islam of the United States has been far denuded and emptied of its distinctives. And it has been blended in with fundamentally a humanistic focus. And so the truth can be said as well as of prominent forms of so-called Christianity. That today, many who would call themselves Christians do so having emptied Christianity of the peculiar features of Christianity. The cross has been removed. The divinity and humanity and the one way of salvation through Christ has been set aside, the sinfulness of man has been rejected, the goodness of man has been affirmed, 
in short, the fundamental doctrines of true Christianity in the United States of America largely has been set aside. Now, we don't mean this absolutely. We give thanks that among a number of denominations, the Lord is at work to preserve that which is fundamental and basic to Christianity. And yet, brethren, here's just one test case. You can realize that something is awful and wrong when it is that Christianity and the American flag are brought together as if those are one and the same thing. What's the point? That patriotism is wrong? No. It's that there's been a loss of peculiar features of Christianity to put anything on par with Christ. Nation, family, anything on par with Christ is abomination in the sight of God. Well, brethren, though our culture is different than Isaiah's day, where there were literal idols, we ought to remember that in our day, there are cultures who have literal idols. There are places in these United States where there are literal handmade idols in places of worship. And certainly in other places of the world, the same is the case as well. But you'll notice fundamental to this is not so much a cultural matter of Isaiah's day and ours, but a more absolute and essential issue. And God is forcing this upon the audience. He's repeatedly making this point to the point that we almost say, okay, we've heard it, we understand it. And so as you read through this chapter alone, you get this recurring almost refrain, I am the Lord, there is none else beside me. In verse 21, there is no God else beside me. Verse 22, there is none else. And again and again, preceding this in this verse, in this chapter, there's this constant testimony. What's the relevance to our day? We need to realize that the unity of the Godhead, the singleness of one God, is a biblical doctrine clearly asserted without hesitation. This is what makes Mormonism a false and pagan religion. This is what makes all other false religions that would tend to say, well, you can become a god, utterly at odds with the Scriptures. This is why we have no place for the modern ecumenical movement, which puts all kinds of religions on the same standing. I've heard it said by others where Christ isn't saying, I want a place at the table. He says, the whole table is mine. This is the point that we must reclaim, that Christ owns it all. It's all His. There's no contender. There is but one God, the living and true God. And this is fundamental throughout. Now, we assert this because the Scriptures assert it, but notice the text goes from that to a more wondrous testimony still. There is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. You see all of a sudden what's at stake. All of this polytheistic, polyhumanistic movements of our day and previous days and doubtlessly in days to come are actually more than simply an assault against the truth what is clearly before us in the Scriptures 
and in reason. It's also an assault against the only hope of salvation. These two things stand or fall together. One God, one Savior. Or many gods, many saviors. The scripture is clear. The one true God who has made heaven and earth. The one true God who has stretched out the heavens. The one true God who formed the earth. The one true God who has established it, who created it. The one true God who formed it to be inhabited. This one true God reigns. And it's this one true God against whom we've sinned. And what's wondrous is it's this one true God who says, I'm the Savior. So consider this one true God holds forth Himself as the one true Savior for all men. Now we have to be able to draw the line from all men to me. What's true of all men necessarily is true then for me. He is the one God over all men. He's also the one Savior for all men. So Paul testifies that he is the only Savior of all men, especially of them that believe. He's not saying that Christ saves all men, but he's saying that Christ is the only Savior that all men may have, can have. He's the only one. And He actually saves all them that believe on Him. So consider then three things this afternoon as we hope to press upon each of us this earnest and yet most blessed call that God issues. Look unto Me and be ye saved. Oh, such comfort in these words. Firstly, consider the unique God. Secondly, the unique Savior. And finally, the unique Salvation. The unique God, the unique Savior, the unique salvation. Now this word unique needs a little moment because everywhere advertised is how to be unique and really what's meant is how to be like the other things, other ones who are buying the same brand and so you can fit in and be unique in a way that is common to everything else. And so uniqueness has suffered a great replacement of understanding. Unique strictly means solitary, alone, individual. And so when we say unique God, we mean the one God. The one unlike whom anyone else is. And likewise, unique Savior, the one Savior. And unique salvation, the only salvation. So you can have the only God, the only Savior, the only salvation. This is what's meant. And this fits in with the text, of course. Notice, it testifies to us Verse 21, there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Now this actually establishes more than we at first realize, but let's start with what's obvious. The Scripture's message is fundamentally clear. There is but one God only, the living and true God. It is without ability to argue with any semblance of understanding against the fact that the Scriptures assert there is one God. This chapter alone asserts it so completely, so clearly, that anyone who would stand opposed, you should take them simply to Isaiah 45. Because you'll notice how clearly it stretches this when it says, for instance, in verse 11, 
says, Thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and His Maker, ask me of things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands, command ye me. So notice he identifies himself as Jehovah, the God of Israel, but in the very next verse, I have made the earth and created man upon it. I even my hands have stretched out the heavens and all their host have I commanded. All creation is by this one true God. Now this is most particularly important in this historical context because Israel was at a time where there was open and you know, abject idolatry, contending nations, contending that their particular gods were their, the true God, or at least a God among others. And what's unique, of course, is the God of the Bible says, I'm not one among many. I'm not the superior one above others. I am the only one. There's no other God beside me. Creation and the Creator are two different things. And I alone stand on the side of Creator. All else is on the side of creature. And so you'll see that again, it testifies in verse 14. Speaking of these other nations, Egypt, Ethiopia, the Sabaeans, and so on. And what will their testimony be? The end of verse 14. Surely God is in thee, and there is none else. There is no God. These who have their idols, by God's grace, are going to be brought to say, Yours is the only true God. We saw this with Nebuchadnezzar when he, in all of his fitful uh, idolatry, is brought to realize there is no other God but the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he makes a decree that others would observe it. Notice verse 18. The Lord that created the heavens, God Himself that formed the earth and made it, He hath established it, He created it not in vain. I am the Lord, and there is none else. Now brethren, we could go on reciting Scripture again and again and again. And yet this isn't in vain. Because in our culture, you can brush shoulders with someone who considers themselves Christian, and yet with the same mouth by which they profess themselves Christian, they'll say that, well, my God is but one God, and Islam has its God, and so on. Now, not only is this utter irrational insanity, it is unbiblical. Now, that's not their concern. They are concerned about the Bible. They gave that up long ago. They wish to hold to certain traditions and appearances of longevity, but they have no real binding grasp of the Scriptures. But you and I need to be different. We need to see that the Scripture's message is that there is one God only. Now, we don't have time to open up the three persons of the one Godhead, but we acknowledge that within this one true God, there are three divine persons. Not three different gods, but three divine eternal persons who are indeed this one God. The Scriptures assert so plainly that there is this one God. Now, not only do the Scriptures assert that there is only one God, it is necessarily so understood by reason. Now, we don't pit reason against Scripture, but neither do we deny the role of reason. Because reason rightly used is a gift that God has given us to employ to His glory. 
So you think about the notion of God, and fundamental to that notion is ultimate, the eternal, the infinite. And instantly you realize you can't have two contenders to that claim. Simply by elementary level understanding, you can't have two ultimates. You can only have one. And this, of course, is true because of truth that God is the eternal one. Creation testifies so openly of the fact that there is a God who is eternal and infinite and spiritual and glorious and worthy of praise. Psalm 19 testifies of this, but also in the book of Romans. You have it shown to us that the things which are created show us this one true God. So in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, it testifies that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, that is impiety, and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. They suppress it. This is one thing we need to return to. Fundamentally, the argument is not something that is simply intellectual and academic. It is spiritual and moral. It's not that they need merely more insight. It's that they need their detesting of the truth removed. This is what John records in John 3. They don't come to the light because men love their deeds of darkness. They want to remain in that. And so you see in Romans 1.18, they hold the truth. The word is they suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them. The invisible things of Him are from the creation of the world, are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. What is something? It's singular. It's not Godheads. It's not gods. But creation is a sufficient testimony to anyone who is willing to acknowledge the truth that there must be one God. And this is, of course, a testimony of God's Word. Well, what this means is this unique God is the only one who then bears ultimate authority, which necessarily means He has the right of commanding us to do His will. It also means that He is the one judge. And you'll notice in the text, it testifies that there is no God else beside me. And the first thing that follows in verse 21 is a just God. This is something we need to come to terms with. And it's often the most simple truths of God's Word that we actually have to labor to understand. There is one God. We think, well, that's for children to get. You know, let's get on to higher level thinking. This fact that there's one God cuts through all of the nonsense of all of our excuses and attempts to shirk things. And some perhaps in this room are actually living as if there are multiple gods. Now, you would never assert as much. You would never dare say to a spouse or to a sibling or to a parent or to a pastor, I think there are more than one God. But rather, in your practice, you waver between these two things. You're like the Jews in Elijah's day. And Elijah has to come and say, listen, if Jehovah is God, serve Him. If Baal is God, serve Him. 
but quit acting like there's this co-equal service to be given to both. One or the other. Now, we don't have Baal in our day. We do have something more subtle, less concrete in one sense, and yet no less real, that we love to pit in our thoughts our own standards as the ultimate judge. Well, I hear what the pastor's saying. I read what the Bible says. My conscience gets concerned for a moment. I'll take a deep breath. And I'll say, but it must not, surely it must not be so concerning as they say, because I've lived my life of 10, 13, 20, 40, 80 years, and I've gotten by this long, and I see people who are far worse than I am, and they get by just okay as well. I'm not involved in the same wicked things that they are, and though I have my sins, yet surely God is not going to cut me down for such little things as sinful speech or a little pleasure in some sinful and forbidden activity. But you see what's actually just taken place in all of that false reasoning is you've pit your own image of a God against the one true God. And this is what Satan loves to do and we are so willing to follow after. To follow false images which in the end are no truth regarding the one true God. The one true God is just. And herein is our problem. The one true God is outside of us. He's not us. We aren't the one true God. Your conceptions aren't the one true God. The culture is not the one true God. The one true God has being more real than yours. Because He is eternal. And He is objectively real as you are objectively real. And if someone were to say, well, I know about you, and then starts to say things that are contrary to your actual expressed will, and say, well, this is what that person would like, you would take an offense to that. And here's what happens in our false reasonings. We take the unique God and we actually demote Him to a sinful image of what He is, which in the end makes Him what He's not. So when we come to this basic truth that there's one true God, we actually have a means before us of establishing a most needed truth with which we must wrestle. Our problem is that there aren't more than one God. Why is that a problem? Because this one true God is the God against whom we've sinned. That's the fundamental problem. He's the one to whom we must answer. He's the one for whom we must give an account. He's the one who must either clear us or condemn us. There's not another His equal. There's not another above Him. There's not another who might evade Him. Here is the one true God. And hear this well. He is the one true God over you. You must give an account to Him. But this leads us secondly to the wondrous truth that this unique God is the unique Savior. And so you notice the text. He is a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. 
what is the nun? Is, he, is, is there no other just God? Is there no other Savior? Well, it's true of all of that. Because this no God else beside me is then described as a just God and a Savior. And so there's no other God, thereby there is no other judge who is just, and there's no other Savior to save. What's the point? Well, this one true God who has made heaven and earth, who is your God, who has made you, to whom you must give an account, and get that in your mind. Settle it clearly in your soul. You will give an account to this one true God. This God against whom you've sinned, and I've sinned, is the God who has identified Himself to be the Savior. Now, what's unique about this? Well, the fact is, there's no other Savior. Now, someone could take offense to that in our culture. But think for a moment that we aren't concerned about that. We're concerned with the truth. And what is the truth? Well, what's man's problem? You know, you can really determine the truth or the falsity of a pretended religion by asking them, what is man's problem? Because a lot of people will say, well, man's problem is other men. You know, it's race tensions and it's financial diversity and it's education and it's world hunger and it's disease and it's this and that. Or man's problem is that he doesn't love himself enough. Man's problem is he doesn't forgive himself. Man's problem is he doesn't see his own dignity. But we don't deny that those are problems to some extent, some more, some less. But what is the root problem? The Bible, of course, doesn't hesitate to identify it. It's that man has rebelled against God and is under God's wrath and curse. That's man's problem. So when we look at the state of affairs in our nation and in the world, in this generation, previous and coming, we can say without hesitation, here's the problem. Man has sinned against God and is guilty in God's sight, stands condemned by God, such that John 3, from which the world might know one verse, verse 16, twice tells us that the one who does not believe upon the Son of God is already under God's wrath. What's that saying? Here's the problem. The world stands condemned now. That's the problem. Now, what's unique about that? Nothing really. What's unique is that in being condemned by this God against whom they've sinned, that God comes forth and says, yet I'll save you. That's what's unique. It's not unique. It's actually not difficult for us to understand. So soon as we understand the nature of sin, that condemnation, God's wrath and curse, should be given to mankind. What's unique is what God presents to us that there is no other Savior beside me. I am the Savior. Now think of the false religions for a moment. All of them in one way or another have at their root level this is the way of salvation. Do better. It may be do better through this religious practice. It may do better in 
better practicing prayer and fasting, do better and better cutting off certain sins and extravagances, do better in cutting off the world, do better in dressing this way, do better in listening to this, not listening to that, do better in the way that you carry yourself, do better in the way that you deny yourself, do better. Brethren, we have no hesitation to say there could be much gained if men denied themselves more. But what they won't gain, not the best of the Stoics, Seneca, any of these have never gained by their self-denial and extreme actions salvation. They may have overcome certain things that we struggle with, but they have never actually addressed the problem. I stand as an enemy to God. Now, this is a startling concept for our world today because a false teaching has permeated much of the visible church. And foreign from much of the message is this. You're an enemy to God. As a sinner, you are one upon whom right now God's wrath is hovering. So it used to be common in English literature for students in high school to read through Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it's hard to know whether that was good or bad because it was used simply as literature instead of a sermon. But be that as it is, what's happened over the last few years, decades, and so on is people have recovered that sermon and started to mock it because of Edwards' images, as if the wrath of God is held, as it were, by a spider's thread, waiting for the appointed time to fall out and consume the person. And the world laughs and snickers and thinks, well, that's silly, you know. What kind of view of God is that? But the problem is, it's the view of God that the Scriptures hold forth. Look again at John 3. And get this for a moment. And the reason we emphasize this is because it will startle us then to see what God is saying of Himself after we make this point. Notice it testifies in verse 18. He that believeth on Him, the Son of God, is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. He's already condemned because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And then notice verse 36, the parallel. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Now we today don't use the language abideth so much. All it means is remains. Notice it doesn't begin. It remains. The wrath of God remains upon those who don't believe upon the Son. It's not as if they're apart from the wrath of God and then, you know, at the end of their life, then the wrath of God begins. The wrath of God is already on them. Now, what is the wrath of God? It is the just and good hatred and cursing of those who deserve it. 
He is the just God. He's never done anything unjust. He's never lost his cool. He's never been provoked. Eventually, finally, has gone beyond. And we say, well, you crossed the line on that one. God's wrath is pure and perfect and good. And it falls upon those who deserve it. And here are those who deserve it. Every sinner. And every sinner who is without the Savior has the wrath of God upon them. Now with that in your mind, look again at the text in Isaiah. He says, a just God and a Savior. The God who is incensed by our sins holds Himself forth as the Savior. There's no other religion that does that. Every other religion says you get it right. You make it right. Mormonism with all of its plastic smiles and all of its false contention that it's the way to morality is settled on this foundation which is quicksand. Do better and you'll get it. You'll become God. You'll be your God of your own universe and you'll populate your own uh, uh, planet and have your own children and all these things and you'll join the pantheon of this so-called Godhead. It's all predicated upon you doing that, which with some help from God, saves you. But the Bible comes and says, you can't save yourself. My wrath's against you. You can't pray yourself into heaven. You can't fast yourself into heaven. You can't read yourself into heaven. I am the Savior. Islam, a word which means submission. Muslim, those who are submitted unto Allah. Think of that language. Islam is a religion that says submit and then you'll be able to take these five pillars and gain yourself into heaven. You want quick access? You declare jihad. You die as a so-called martyr and you engage in your fleshly lusts satisfied in the sensual heaven. And how did you get there? You got it by yourself. Brethren, here is what's unique. The one true God of the Bible, who is the one true God of all creation, says to those who are under His wrath and curse, I present Myself as your Savior. I come and declare that I am the Savior of sinners. I'm not the Savior of those who are righteous. I'm not the Savior of those who submit themselves and they get it right and they grow and they go through these five pillars and then they arrive at this final entrance into heaven. I'm not that one. I'm the one who comes to you in your wretchedness and your brokenness that you can't fix. And I say, behold, I am the one who does. This is what's unique in all of the nonsense of so-called relativity, in all of the nonsense of false ecumenism, all of these things which contend that in one way or another there are multiple gods and multiple ways of God actually covers up the beauty of the one true God and what He does. Young people, you need to tune in. Because you're living and breathing in a world, however sheltered by your parents, however sheltered by your church, 
You're living in a world that is downplaying this message. And in the church even, it's lessened. And it's sort of looked upon as fiery preaching and outdated. And it's out of touch with the more sensitive and you know, culture of our own day. But the Bible comes with such basic, regular, rudimentary assertion. One God. One God. One God to whom you must give an account. You must answer. You must stand before. And though you've sinned against Me, I'm the Savior. This is what's striking. The one God from whom we would run because of the guilt of our consciences who is just, is the one God that calls us to look to Him. This brings us then thirdly to the unique offer. And what a thought that this God who despises us in our sin presents Himself as the only Savior. There is none beside Me. And then what does He demand of us? What price is sufficient to pay off your debt? What price is sufficient to answer the record of your injustices, your sins, your sensuality, your laughter while you gloried in iniquity? What is it that God will say, bring to Me? He says, look unto Me and be ye saved. Surely this just must be for the Jews. You know, they already had a covenant with God. And so he's just sort of covenantally weighing the balance and he's bringing it so that they can then somehow covenantally afford this thing. No, he says, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. For again, I am God and there is none else. Look unto me. This word, saved, delivered from the just wrath and curse of God. Look to Me and you're delivered. Look to Me and you're saved. And freely so. Look. This look is a looking of faith and expectation. It's looking to One who is outside of us to do that for us which none other can do. It's an entrusting to Him to do what we can't. And fundamental to true Christianity is this look of faith. Because faith necessarily takes all hope off of ourselves. And it looks across the whole of the chasm that we have created by our sins to the God against whom we've sinned on the other side. And we realize that the foundation on which we stand is ready at any moment to give way and plunge us into hell. And God says from the other side of the chasm that separates us from the enjoyment of God, I am God and there's none else. Look to Me and be saved. It doesn't say, as it were, leap the chasm. It doesn't say build the bridge. He says, look and I'll save you. We get little whispers of this throughout the Scriptures. You see it even with Peter as he gets out of the boat and walks to the Lord. His eyes are on the Lord and then so soon as he takes his eyes off, the waves overwhelm him and he sinks. But then again, he cries out, Lord, save me! The Lord grabs him. This is that look of 
faith, trusting Him against whom we've sinned. We might say, but He bears the sword. Yes, He does. But He also bears salvation. Here is what's unique. The Lord doesn't say, look to me so I can tell you the five pillars you need to fulfill. Look to me so I can tell you the various things you need to do. Look to me so I can tell you how many prayers to say, how many penances to perform. He says, look to me, notice the link, and be saved. They're bound up together. The look of faith upon God saves. This is why Christ says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And all who look to Him shall be saved. The look of faith saves. This is what's unique. Isaiah will go on, of course, so precious to us in Isaiah 55, when he says in verse 1, "...ho everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, he that hath no money, come ye buy and eat, yea, come buy wine and milk." without money and without price. The freeness of it all is so clearly set forth. And what God says is, look to me. What is that look? It's a look of entrusting Him to do what we can't. It's a look to Him saying, I have failed. I have destroyed myself. Hosea 13.9 But in you is my help. That's the look. I'm looking to you to do it. And brethren, what a well-grounded look it is because bound up in this is a look specifically to Christ. And you think of John 1, how it's related, of course. He's the Creator. In the beginning was uh, the Word. And the Word was with God. The Word was God. He creates all things. And then verse 14, He became flesh and dwelt among us. And as the incarnate Son of God, He suffered all the harassment of sinners. But more than that, He suffered all of the just indignation of God. And what does Christ say? He says, look to Me. I'm the Savior. So may I say it to you. This is the one God with whom you have to do. You have other problems in your life. I don't question that. Some are larger, some are smaller. But here's the fundamental issue facing you this evening. If you are without Christ at this very moment, you don't await the wrath of God. The wrath of God is already upon you. The fire is already lit. You're so insensitive to spiritual things that you don't feel the warmth and heat of that wrath you don't realize that the ground you think is stable is already caving in. You don't realize that underneath is the gaping hole of an understandable depth of agony awaiting you and experience everlastingly because you have sinned against so glorious, so majestic, so good a God as the one true God is. And He shouts to you, Look to Me and be saved. How is it that no one's looking? How is it that anyone who is in their sins doesn't realize that this God who says, look to Me and be saved is the God who at the end of time will send us to hell and with a double damnation if we have heard the good news of Jesus Christ. Oh, the agony that awaits those 
who not only stand as sinners condemned, but sinners condemned who have refused God's overtures and appeals of the Gospel. Young people, you must see this. You must know this. God demands, without exception, that you look to Him now. That you look to Him and believe upon Him. He doesn't say, wait till you get older. Wait till you get your home. Wait till you get more mature in understanding. He doesn't say, look unto me, all adults of the ends of the earth. He says, all the ends of the earth, however young, however old, however aware of all of their sins, however unaware, I'm the Savior, you must look to me. This is the appeal that comes forth from God. I can only declare it. But oh, that I could declare it better, clearer. God, the God of heaven and earth, the ultimate, the glorious, the one whom the angels right now in all of their holiness are praising, covering themselves because they know there's none like unto this God, is the God against whom you've sinned. The God whose wrath once unleashed will both uphold you in your being so as to overwhelm you with your agony relentlessly forever. That God is calling you to be saved. He's not doing it because He gains anything from you. He's not doing it because you deserve it. He's doing it because He's rich in mercy and holds forth to you deliverance from your unending agony. An agony you can't understand right now. An agony that none of us, however steeped in the Scriptures, can understand right now. Which can only be understood truly when it's too late. And God knows that. And so He paints pictures. He helps us seek to understand something of it. But what He is most clear on is this. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Christ is so clear on it. I am the way, the truth, the life. There's no other way unto God but by Me. There's no other name given among men by which we must be saved than Jesus Christ. How then can I attain such blessedness? God has privileged you to hold forth to you right now Here are the terms. No money. No price. No resolutions. No promises. No works. No actions. Simply expect it of Him. How can I expect it of Him? I've sinned against Him. He's the one you realize that I've sinned against. So surely I have to get something presentable first. And don't you see why there are so many false religions which share in this? Because it's rational to us as foolish creatures to think that we should get our ship in order before appealing to the Savior. But God says, set all of that aside. Don't fix yourselves because you can't. You'll just be adding sin to sin. Here's what you must do. You must look to Me because I save. That's who I am. There's no other one in all the universe like this. I am God and there is none else. I am the Savior and there is none else. The only conclusion then is look unto Me 
and be ye saved. Oh, for those you here who are brethren indeed, who have looked to him, think again. How precious it is, this God against whom you've sinned with such glee, such vile happiness, has not only appealed to you in these terms, but has also drawn you to embrace these terms, which are no offerings of your own, but are the receivings of God in Christ as your Savior. And realize it doesn't say, look unto me and you might be saved or you will be saved, but be ye saved. So soon as you've looked, you are saved at peace with God in Christ. May it be our prayer that God would draw many others to magnify His grace and rejoice with thanksgiving that in confessing our sins and looking to God and our Savior, they too should be saved. Would you stand with me for prayer?